One of my strongest childhood memories and, and one of my first really strong memories of pop music and, and even maybe life outside my house and, and my hometown was seeing the video for Culture Club's Church of the Poison Mind. There's something in Boy George's exuberance in that video that is so present and completely unguarded in all the years of listening to and, and watching pop stars, the film for The Church of the Poison Mind remains one of the most searing and honest and powerful things I think I've ever seen. the songs that were doing well at that time. Um, this, this is when Elvis Costello had Get Happy Out, which wasn't a big hit, but my sister had it, so I was hearing that a lot. And all of these songs had this kind of, you know, throwback Sam and Dave reverb to them. Um, and this was really the heyday of, of blue-eyed soul pop. I'm not saying that I was identifying these qualities when I was seven years old and I saw it on television. When I look back now on the kind of like bubbling ecstasy that you see Boy George, he's just beaming in this video. And it's in every shot. It's in all the stupid, silly things they're running around doing. What it says to me is that this is the moment where Boy George is making it. And he's, he's believing he's making it. He's doing all of the things that he's put in his mind as a definition for making it. He's accomplishing all of them. He's, he's in smash hits. He's getting written up in the trades. People are following him around, taking him his picture. They have a hit single in England. And he's convinced now with their deal in America that they're going to break America, which is what all these bands ultimately want to do because England is so small and America is massive. But most of the time, the problem is that England moves way too fast and way too fully to embrace trends. Pop music is treated in England more as a pastime you know, as fad culture, which is ultimately all it is. But that's embraced. Where in America, we still have this obsession with the idea that pop stars are, are folk heroes and troubadours. And there's this notion of integrity and authenticity. And, you know, British pop writers have, have for a while called that out and said, you know, Americans are, are stuck on these notions that are so completely absurd. The thing about Culture Club is that Culture Club crossed over in a completely unprecedented way. At the same time as Duran Duran and a whole host of other British bands. From the Human League on, from 81 to 85, it was the second British invasion. And that was widely commented on in those terms at the time. And that was accurate. You know, apart from Prince and Bruce Springsteen, and obviously Michael Jackson, um, America was a very thin playing field. I mean, it, it, there was not much going on here. artists that were doing well were not surprising artists. All of the novelty was coming from England. During this period, Boy George was, without any exaggeration, 
the second most famous human being on earth behind Michael Jackson. Boy George was everywhere. And that's strange because Michael Jackson was a very good looking young black man who had been a favored son of white America since he was five. And Boy George was a cross-dressing, obnoxious British guy. How the fuck did that happen? After the bicentennial in 1976, American youth were really tired of, you know, everything to do with Americana. When you have this kind of um, youth that's celebrating an alienation from that whole thing in New York, and starting these bands that become what we consider the foundational, you know, New York punk movement. This doesn't start out along generational lines necessarily. It starts out more along the lines of alienation from the whole culture. The canon of New York punk stuff gets over to England. You have a class war occurring. Social services have ground to a halt. England is in the midst of a catastrophic depression. Nobody gives a shit what's going on with the kids. They just leave them to figure it out. And they're tired of hearing about the war. They're tired of hearing about the sacrifices of the war that everyone's got their heads in the sand about. And it just kicks off. And punk rock becomes kind of the flag that these kids fly to start screaming about how everything is such a fucking nightmare for them. Because punk rock as a form and a formula is not so far from rock and roll, it quickly becomes a boys club. And it quickly becomes about, you know, aggression and acting out and acting up. And it very quickly narrows the bounds of what's acceptable. And to his credit, John Lydon has lamented how, you know, it just became a uniform so fast. And that was a complaint that all the people who lasted punk and succeeded in the 80s also registered. Robert Smith couldn't stand that. Susie Sue couldn't stand that. You know, Bauhaus thought it was totally foolish. Wire always thought that punk was completely stupid. So, you know, punk comes and goes as a cultural flashpoint. And bands like Susie and the Banshees and Adam and the Ants um, come out of this and they start to evolve into different things. Richard Branson is flying J John Lydon down to Jamaica to smoke weed and trying to get him to join Devo. It's got to be one of the weirdest times in pop music history because all the record labels are running scared. They don't want to touch punk bands. They've seen what's happened with this. These kids don't give a shit. They're going to come in here and piss on the walls. I'm not signing any punk bands. You know, punk becomes a four-letter word. It really does. Malcolm goes back to his default setting, which is clothes. Vivian Westwood is interested in appropriating a kind of a pseudo-tribal look. You know, in a very tawdry, unapologetic way, as fashion often does, she's pulling inspiration from, you know, Native American stereotypes, Caribbean and South American stereotypes from African stereotypes. She's trying to create this tattered, um, aboriginal look for pop stars. And, she, you know, she's banking on this being the next thing. Malcolm doesn't have a band to put these clothes on, though. So what does he do? He goes out, finds a band that's doing reasonably well, and steals them from Adam Ant. He steals this whole fucking band. And he takes them and has them back up a 14-year-old laundrette clerk named Annabella Lewin. She's 15 by the time they shoot the cover for their debut album, on which she's nude. Bow Wow Wow had a big hit. 
I want candy. It's never died. It's never gone away. You'll still hear it once or twice a year, even if you're not trying to in a commercial or a movie. It's just one of those big, dumb choruses that you can never be done with. You can recycle it forever. Adamant doesn't think Vivian's idea is going to float, and he sticks with his thing, which is, you know, a highway robber, pseudo-pirate thing that goes back to, you know, the British tradition of um, flamboyant pirates. He's right. And he does much better with this than Bow Wow Wow does. But one of the most interesting casualties of Bow Wow Wow is Lieutenant Lush, a.k.a. Boy George. Malcolm, obviously, like anyone else, saw George as a standout character in this Blitz Kid scene that was going on, named after London Club The Blitz, which was famous for embracing, you know, cross-dressing, androgyny, and all that kind of stuff. George was going there with his best friend, Marilyn, uh, another cross-dresser who doesn't really ever enjoy pop success. Um, he has a minor period of fame in the mid-80s um, as part of Boy George's macho um, YMCA comeback in 86 or 87. Not something I'm going to get into. As Lieutenant Lush, Boy George is still, I believe, 19, but Annabelle Lynn is just turning 15. So, you know, this is a huge age gap. And Boy George is obnoxious. At this point, he's completely on the outs with his family, and he's just going off. He's been watching punk develop with a keen eye, and he's seen the Bromley contingent. You know, the Blitz kids are the second Bromley contingent. You have Steve Strange and Boy George and a handful of other people, and and they're, you know, pushing a different button. They're pushing a button that's not about, you know, bondage, leather, and rough trade. It's saying that, you know, we're maybe we're homosexual. It doesn't matter. The important thing here is that we're just totally going for it. Annabella Lewin says it's me or him. Um, Lieutenant Lush is not part of Bow Wow Wow. And then he goes out and tries to get a band together. He's already got some decent connections. Um, he gets together with John Moss, a drummer who's been on the make for a long time. He was in The Dam briefly. Um, and London, a really awful, um, but, you know, early punk band. The two of them have very strong ideas about what works and what doesn't and what direction they want to go in. So it's not that the others are session players, it's just that they're not, their role is kind of not to, you know, get into the fray. And the fray is Boy George, who is a completely manic person. He's a narcissist. He's passive aggressive. He's also socially aggressive and mischievous. It's just about creating drama. Because of the doors that were open to him from being able to be a relatively good singer, he was able to get away with it to such an absurd degree to a global degree, really. From Kissing to be Clever and the definitive color by numbers, you're talking six to eight all-time classic pop singles over the space of two albums back to back. It's pretty remarkable. And Culture Club just took off. After the exhaustion of touring for two solid years on the back of Kissing to be Clever and Color by Numbers, Culture Club predictably came out with a weaker third album, um, Waking Up with the House on Fire. They were able to keep grease on the gears with Miss Me Blind, but overall, the record's horrible. And George, at this point, is getting way too deep into drugs. It all starts to fall apart. By 85, 86, he's such a fucking train wreck, he doesn't even know his own name. And I don't know if he ever got it back on track. Who knows? Doesn't matter. But basically, you know, his dreams were fulfilled in this band. He had such a particular narcissism and egomania. And he was somehow able to satisfy it. To, to literally climb to the very top of the celebrity mountain. 
from fucking nothing. The initial ecstasy of that is what you see in, in Church of the Poison Mind. And it's just so beautiful. Karma Chameleon is the most overplayed song in, in their catalog. Every time I listen to that song, I can still feel a sense of identification with the kind of pain and aching and longing that the author is feeling. And I know that the author of this particular song is having these feelings about another man. A man who's conflicted about his own sexuality and who isn't willing to, you know, embrace it as openly as the author. The delivery of it, you know, technically too, his singing on that song is probably his best. You used to be so sweet, I heard you say that my love was an addiction. That's not a peacock song. Um, that's a really heavy piece of, of longing. I'll put it in these terms, right? Erasure's a little respect. Absolutely love that song. That song is expressly like, it's like Moses holding the Ten Commandments that is so in your face about sexual politics and acceptance and trying to be free with one's feelings in a society that is telling them that they're not free to feel that way. For Karma Chameleon to kind of slide that all in there in, in such more universal terms, it's a really appreciable accomplishment, I think, culturally. The, the whole spiral out of control that comes after that, when Boy George just goes into every drug under the sun, and he, he realizes that there's nowhere to go but down, and fame isn't you know filling all the holes in his life. You can write the rest of this, you know the story. There's a second part to the awfulness of it for me, which is that Boy George never really gets a fair shake again. There's a slight little momentary resurgence around the I love the 80s thing that went on in the early 2000s and 90s on VH1, where Culture Club kind of almost gets back together and does some you know greatest hits type stuff it doesn't last because the personalities are still too hot and everyone's egos are still too hot and no one can get that stuff in check and none of the none of the problems are resolved and that peters out you don't really get a proper testament to who boy george was until two years ago when mark ronson releases somebody to love me but what really capped this off is one of the finest videos ever associated with a song, as far as I'm concerned. Diane Kruger, the very world-famous model who played Helen of Troy in the bloated Troy film and delivered such an incredible performance as a British spy in Inglorious Bastards, she stars as Boy George in this video. And they have paid every attention to detail on the costuming and, as best they could, the mannerisms. There's a little date stamp at the bottom, in the beginning, and it shows what would have been Boy George's 21st birthday. It's such a beautiful way to pay respect to this guy and to his band and to his moment. Because you really only get that one moment when you go for full-on pop stardom. Oh, 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 